Welcome into another edition of the Dana and Victory podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. I am Rick, and for this edition of the podcast, I am joined by the legend, Brian Snow. And Snow was in Charleston for the Charleston Classic, where the Musketeers went 2-1 and one this past weekend. They opened up with a 73-51 win over Towson, then played UConn to a 75-74 win in double overtime, and wrapped it up with a loss in the finals to Florida, 70-65. Brian, you were there. Give me just kind of the initial impressions, the initial takeaway. Like You, you had your thoughts about this team going into Charleston. Did anything change? Did they confirm what you were already thinking about them? What was kind of your takeaway after the event? Um, I mostly confirmed what I thought, that they're a pretty good team. They're, they're a flawed team. But they're a pretty good team that's capable of beating anybody. I mean, I guess theoretical capable of losing to anybody, even though that's not really true. But they're going to be in a lot of close games. But they're the, a team that's built to win close games. Um, and that, you know, they're going to be a really good team and a tough team to beat all year. And there's some stuff that has to get cleaned up, you know, and, and they're, they're one. They're more than one. They're two shooters short right now. They get one eventually here in Kiki Tandy. And then. You know, there's things to work on, but I think UConn's going to be a really good win at the end of the year. That's a good team. Um, they played just one horrendous half against St. Joe's, and people are going to hang on to that for another three weeks because it's what people do. But, like, if you look at UConn outside of that half of basketball, they've been really good. I think that's going to be a good win for Xavier. And, you know, they were right in it with Florida, and they got – they were – I'm not going to say at any point they were the better team that beat disingenuous but they had their best player with a wide open shot to tie a game that they would have won had that shot gone in not all that bad no i think that's that's right and like you said i mean for the most part this event seemed to confirm the direction this thing was already trending for xavier um you mentioned the yukon win that game was a classic i don't know that it was the highest level of basketball but it was two teams really getting after it uh, for 50 minutes. Um, what was the environment like inside the TD arena? Um, it was really good. For Xavier, UConn, and Xavier, Florida, it was really good. Those three fan braces really traveled pretty well. Xavier probably had the most, UConn the second most, then Florida. So for Xavier, UConn, it was – I mean, I think they listed the attendance just under 4,500 – I think capacity is right around 5,000, and it's not a very big place, obviously, so it, it felt like a really good atmosphere. Um, I will say it was about 156 freaking degrees in there, um, so that's why Tyreek started cramping before he suffered his 88th career-ending injury with his ankle at the end of regulation, And um, but it, it was a lot of fun. The, the finals was good. I mean, it got rocking at the end. When, you know, Xavier was making their run, the Florida fans were trying to help their team, the Xavier fans trying to help their team. So it, it's a really good event. Um, I have no inside information on this, but I would assume it's an event Xavier wants to get back to when they're allowed. Let's talk about some individual performances from the event. And Brian, let's start with Najee Marshall because he's been, at least to this point, this team's de facto go-to guy in big moments. You look at you know the Missouri game, the UConn game, he certainly came up with some big shots in those games. I would say 
overall, I think his performance has been probably slightly disappointing to this point of the year, which is, I mean, it's tough to say with the numbers he's putting up, but he hasn't been all that efficient on the large, especially against some bad competition. And then in the Florida game, he really didn't show up, played 33 minutes, had six points, was three for six from the field, four assists, two turnovers in that one. Assess Najee Marshall's play at the Charleston Classic. Um, UConn, obviously, the second half into overtime, he was really good. Um, he, he had that run, what was it, maybe 12 in a row at one point or something like that. Um, yeah, I think I don't it was remember. 14 or 15, actually. He yeah. had like six straight shots for Xavier or something from over or end of regulation into overtime. And then I'll be honest, in the Florida game, you know, I thought Najee showed growth. It was Paul's got the matchup that he can take advantage of. Let's get it to Paul. And that's what he did. And, you know, four assists, two turns. Sure, you maybe want your best, you know, your most talented player to shoot the ball more than six times. But I think he recognized him forcing things, him him trying to, you know, go at Scotty Lewis and 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 all that might not be Xavier's best way to score. It was, you know, Tyreek down low. It was Paul with a with a positive matchup, and he let that happen. So I actually thought that showed growth. Um, overall, you know, he was good. I, I'm not gonna. He wasn't great, but I thought it was a. I thought Charleston was a step in the right direction for him. It showed that he was willing to take on different roles for this team. Yeah, I think the the point about his performance against Florida is an interesting one because you'd like it if his bad performances or his off night, so to speak, are ones where he only takes six shots, you know, where he's not four for 14 or something like that. I mean, going three for six doesn't kill you. There weren't a lot of bad decisions mixed in there. I think when Najee hurts this team is when he starts making bad decisions, giving possessions away with turnovers or, or ridiculous shots. And certainly you can, you can stomach a certain amount of those questionable shot selections with your, your most talented player, but at times it gets a bit egregious. And speaking of that, I kind of want to go back to the play in the UConn game end of the first overtime where it was, the game was tied he has the ball with um, probably about seven or eight seconds to start. When he let go of his shot, there was still about 3.5 on the shot. He unleashes a 40-footer. Brian, what were your thoughts when Najee pulled up <laughs> pulled up from about 40 with three and a half to go in the game tied? I turned to Jeff Goodman, turned to me and go, goes, what the hell was that? And I said, I have no freaking idea. And I thought Travis Steele's expression kind of set everyone's reaction perfectly, where he just stared like, you just did what? Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it's not the worst thing in the world because it really didn't give UConn a chance to get a, a shot of any sort of, you know, reality up. And, it you know, it didn't cause a, a charge where somehow he had already passed the ball, he charges, and it's free throws at the other end, and they lose. Um, so it wasn't the worst possible thing. But it was pretty bad. I and Najee kind of. I think he was just kind of feeling it, and I'm not really sure what went through his head. But that was the decision he came to. Needless yeah. to say, I don't think we'll be seeing that one in the future. Uh, there was a conversation on the message board um, about whether or not there should have been a timeout called there. Um, now, obviously, I think we're both in the camp that we disagree. You probably don't call a timeout there, but. 
explain that for fans why in that situation Travis Steele isn't going to take a timeout most of the time. I think what fans forget is like when you call a timeout, both teams get the timeout, not just the team that called it. So both coaches are able to coach. And, you know, Danny Hurley, he's pretty good at his job, too. So when you allow a set defense in a short clock situation, first of all, you don't even know what defense they're going to come out in. It's possible. I mean, unlikely Hurley's a man to man guy, but it's certainly possible that that they come out in a zone and you have no preparation for it. And that's going to be awful. And also against a set defense, you know, they just, there's no, not as much open court. There's everyone's going to be set. It's, it's just hard. The best thing you get in that situation as a coach is under five seconds, your, your most talented player with the ball with space. That's all you can draw up at that point. And that's exactly what Xavier had. Their most talented player just decided that, you know, a 45-footer was a good idea. And it wasn't. So, but timeouts, they, they are not this magical cure-all. Um, both coaches are allowed to coach during the timeout, not just the team that calls it. And I think fans too often just think, well, our coach could draw something up. Well, the other guy can too. I feel like most coaches, um, when they think, Offense, they think optimistically and think upside, like, oh, we, we want that opportunity because, you know, we'll, we'll convert on it. Defensively, they think about all the terrible things that can happen, you know, regardless of what's going on. And so I think if you ask any coach, their biggest advantage during a game is when they get to set their defense. Yeah. So, I, like, I totally agree that the timeout and allowing a team to set their defense is just a huge huge advantage that a lot of times you don't want to give them, especially when you have a guy. And look, I saw the argument on the message board, which I don't think is necessarily a terrible point like overall, which is that, you know, Najee has had a tendency to make some, you know, have some brain cramps and, and make some questionable decisions. So why would you trust him to do that? Well, that'd be fine if he hadn't have just played a ridiculous 10 minutes of basketball prior to that play. I mean, he was absolutely out of his mind, fantastic, for 10 straight minutes, had scored like 15 straight points for Xavier. There was no reason to be questioning Najee Marshall at that moment. He was playing incredibly. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean... That, I think, does, does a timeout take, take it out of an ability to have a brain cramp? Right. I mean, he could do it after the timeout, too. That's the other thing. But with only 3.5 I mean, I mean, and not Against much Florida, and I'm sure we'll get to it, Xavier called a timeout and said, we're not switching. What did Quentin do, Gooden do the very next time down the court? Switched. He switched. Yeah. And, you know, that's actually probably a good transition. I, th I think we've probably talked about the UConn game enough, but I did want to address that play. But in the Florida game, you mentioned the switching on that specific play, but in general, I think Xavier's biggest issue in that game was there miscommunications on the defensive end? Specifically, they were trying to switch all screens for a lot of that game. And it seemed like at, at times they did it well, but at other times guys lost track or forgot that's what they were supposed to be doing. It was weird. You know, I thought Florida handled it really well in the first half. But I, I, I talked to Mike White after the game, that Florida's head coach, and he thought they did. Um, he, thought, he thought the switching gave them a lot of problems. And I think both things can be true at the same time. When Xavier actually executed it, they did a really good job with it. It's just too often 
they just completely screwed it up. Um, just leaving a guy when you shouldn't leave a guy and, and things like that, um, which is stuff, quite honestly, they hadn't done all season. I know people are trying to point to, like, they played a long game, the, you know, the two days before, whatever. Like, that's ridiculous. That had nothing to do with them, in my opinion, screwing up switching. You know, that for a team that switches as much as Xavier switches, that's really their defensive identity. Um, I don't know that I can point to one time in the UConn game where they screwed up a switch. I'm sure it happened because it, you know, it's natural that it's going to happen occasionally. But let's say they screwed it up twice in the UConn game. They probably screwed it up 15 to 20 times in the Florida game. Now, it didn't always hurt them, but it still happened. Um, but Mike thought it gave them a lot more problems than I did just, you know, viewing the game on the sidelines. So, so I found that a, a little bit interesting. But had Xavier done a better job with their switching, uh, I think it's a different game. You, you could see it even on the first play. Uh, I believe Noah Locke ended up with a wide open three. And, and Noah Locke, who Xavier recruited, it, it, the scouting report's very simple. Make him drive to the rim. You know, run him off the line. And I don't remember who was involved in it. I think it was Najee and, and, and Tyreek. And they just didn't really defend it the way you should with a shooter. And he got a wide open three and he made it. So you saw it from the very beginning on, on relatively easy stuff. And then the other big problem was Andrew Nemhart's slow. Now, he's a good player, but he's really slow. Jason Carter got beat off the dribble repeatedly by Andrew Nemhart, which if you would have told me before the game, I would have laughed in your face. Because I thought that was Xavier's biggest advantage was when Nemhard gets switched on to Carter and Jones, he can't beat them off the dribble. And he was really able to do that with Carter, which shouldn't happen. Yeah, and Keontae Johnson really gave Carter a lot of problems too when he was on him. Carter, for the most part, I think he's been pretty solid since he's worked his way back from injury. He's he's versatile. He hasn't been very assertive on the offensive end, but I think that was kind of expected coming in as he was getting used to these guys because that's kind of his game. He's very unselfish. But, I mean, are you concerned after seeing him in the Florida game that maybe high major talent and opponents give him too much trouble? Or do you think that was just an off night for him and he wasn't quite himself for whatever reason? I don't think high major opponents had anything to do with him missing a wide open layup or two. I really don't. Not so much the layups. I was more concerned about the defense because he was just getting blown by way too often and just seemed like he was chasing guys the entire night and couldn't keep up. No, because the night before against UConn against better athletes, he didn't have that problem. True. Yeah. So I I can't equate that to being the – now, Keontae Johnson's really good to me. He's Florida's best player. He's not their best prospect, but he's their best player. Like, if you're going to get beat by Keontae Johnson, that's going to happen. Like, Andrew Nemhard, that shouldn't happen. Um, so, and this is after keeping Alterick Gilbert and Christian Vitale, who would, you know, if they're in a race up and back, both of them would reach the back before the, uh, Andrew Nemhard reaches the up. You know, he kept those guys in front, and they hadn't, you know, they couldn't go anywhere. So, I... I don't know what it was. Maybe his legs were tired. I don't know. Maybe he just was off that day. I can't say for sure, but I don't think the high major thing's a problem because it wasn't a problem against Missouri for him. It wasn't a problem against UConn, and it was a problem against Florida. I, I just I just don't think that's the issue. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I would actually tend to agree with you. And I think it is worth noting in that UConn game, he played 47 of the 50 minutes more than anyone else on Xavier's team. So while I hear you, it's not an excuse. You, you can't blame it on that. You have to wonder a little bit. He just did not look like the same guy that he's been against Florida, specifically in terms of his his legs. So I yeah. do wonder a little bit if he was just worn down and, and and that was from playing a lot of minutes because he went from you know missing some practice, getting slowly acclimated with you know 12, 16 minutes those first couple of games, and then all of a sudden now he's been playing 38, 40 minutes a game it seems like. So he's he's really kind of been thrown in there and maybe he's just he's just worn down a little bit at this point and needs needs a few days off, which he's getting this week. Yes. Yeah. And you know, as I said, it's it's possible. I'm I'm not not here to say I know how he was feeling because I don't. But I, I just generally don't find that to be a concern. All, all things considered, um, I think he's going to be better. I don't think he's going to put up massive gaudy numbers, but you know, I think he's going to be better and he's going to be a versatile piece and a team that really helps this and a guy that really helps this team get a lot of wins especially in close games. You saw it against UConn. He made, you know, obviously made the free throws and everyone will point to that, but you know, he handled the ball a lot. He made decisions. He was the guy they kind of trusted. Granted half the team had already fouled out, but you know, like he did a lot for him. So I I think it, uh, you know, Jason Carter's going to be fine. Um, Maybe, Maybe at the end of the year, you look at the stat sheet and he averages seven and a half points and seven rebounds, and you don't think you're thinking, eh, it was just okay. That that's what he should be doing on this team. He's not the best big guy, Tyreek Jones is. He's not the best scorer, Najee Marshall is. He's not the best player, Paul Scruggs is. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a fourth best player. You mentioned Paul Scruggs being this team's best player, and you had written about him more on the premium message board at musketeerreport.com after watching the Charleston Classic. You know, Paul finishes that Florida game. He goes for 24 points. He was 8 of 15 from the field. Um, did have six turnovers in that one. But just overall in the Charleston Classic, you're right, he was Xavier's best player. Um, how like, how have you seen this evolve with Najee Marshall and Paul Scruggs in terms of sort of being the go-to guy? And do you think there's there's any tweaking that needs to go on? Should Xavier be feeding Paul more? Or do they have this thing right for the most part that Najee is probably their best scorer and go-to guy for the most part, but Paul is very well capable of carrying this team as well, and those should be kind of 1A and 1B? Um, I actually think they've got it figured out. Unlike with Trayvon Blewett and Edmund Sumner, where it just never really worked, they couldn't figure out who was Batman and who was Robin or you know, co-Batman or co-Robins, how... They couldn't figure it out. It was just, it just didn't work. And I don't know why both are great kids. Both are unselfish. Both like each other. Like it just didn't work. This works to me. Paul's the best player. Najee's the go-to guy. And I think each is comfortable with that. And that's not to say Paul won't take big shots. Obviously he did. Now he happened to miss it, but you know, everyone misses shots. Um, but I think they've got a good understanding of how to play late and you know what each guy's role is and and I, I think it I think it fits right now. Now you kind of wish one of them was a really good shooter, but you know that's that's a different dynamic altogether. But in terms of the 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 role dictation, I, I think that's been I think that works for this team almost in a weird way. 
Yeah, and I think that's been one of the team's bigger improvements from last season. If we're looking at you know where they were at at this time last year and where they're at now, it's last year no one looked capable of stepping up and being the leader of this team. And then when guys did try, it looked like everyone was sort of trying to do it at once and it was uncomfortable. And now it seems like, you know, regardless of how well everyone has played, Najee Marshall has had his struggles, Quentin Gooden has had his struggles, Paul Scruggs has had his off nights or even a game where he didn't play. Regardless of, you know, how that works out, it seems like everyone is more comfortable with the role that they're playing and they kind of understand where they fit in with this group, and, and that includes Quentin and Tyreek and even Jason Carter. So um, I, I think that's been a, a really good part about the start of this season for Xavier, even though there's been some offensive struggles, even though they've missed a ton of shots, even though there's been some turnovers in games where you know it's just gotten out of hand a little bit. I think overall, guys understanding their roles and the pieces fitting together has looked night and day compared to where they were at last year with that. Yeah, I mean... This team's very cohesive, very, very cohesive. So I, I wouldn't have much of a concern about that. Brian, I guess kind of the other big bit of news after the Charleston Classic now is, you know, everyone's been talking about when is Kiki Tandy going to be back? You know, Xavier needs him back. He's he's going to get this offense going, and fans are all excited to see him. We did finally get word that Kiki Tandy, as well as Daniel Ramsey, are back practicing with the team this week. There's the expectation that they could be available for Lipscomb. Obviously, they'll they'll need to get through this week of practice. They'll need to show that they you know are have enough wind to even play in a game at this point. But I think it's likely they you know at least Kiki specifically could see a few minutes um, Saturday against Lipscomb. Let's talk about what Kiki Tandy can actually bring to this team. What realistic expectations should be for a freshman guard who's missed you know almost a month now of practice and game what what do you think fans should be realistically expecting to see out of him well what he can be is the team's best shot creator shot maker um no one no one on the roster has the ability to create space with the dribble that kiki does and when he does he's the best shooter off of it um in terms of what to expect you know five six points a game maybe seven um Guy who screws things up occasionally. Someone who's, you know, asked to defend, uh, you know, apply pressure, who will then in turn probably screw some things up. And a guy who's going to have a few bad turnovers. He, he's not a gifted passer. He's not. I compared him to Mark Lyons coming out. and I think he's a little bit better shooter than Mark was. But he's still that type of player. He's a scoring combo guard who can do some wild things at times. And, you know. He's not he's not going to sit here and be John Stockton, folks. Like that's that's not him. He's going to make a couple threes here and there. He's going to maybe throw down a dunk in transition and get get into the paint and make a circus shot, but there's going to be some bad moments as well and he's going to be a guy who looks like he should be coming off the bench for a good team because that's what he is. Yeah, in terms of what he still needs to work on, I think People are, you know, people are wondering, oh, is he going to take over at point guard? Will he fix his team's turnover problems? I don't think that should be the expectation at all. I think, you know, taking care of the ball and valuing possessions and learning how to run a team at the point guard position are kind of the things he still needs to work on. And then defensively, he's still got to figure out that end of the court as well because he's never been asked to defend in his life, as you alluded to. Yeah, and you know, he missed a month. <laughs> That's not easy for a senior, let alone a freshman. I, I just think. 
the myth of Kiki Tandy has grown to incredible levels. Yeah, that's kind of uh, typical. It's always, you know, the guy sitting yeah. out is always the, the one. The backup play. quarterback's really good until he's Ryan Finley. Right, <laughs> of course. And, uh, I mean, I think in terms of when you're bringing him back, the timing works out fairly well. You have Lipscomb on Saturday the 30th and then Green Bay on Wednesday, December 4th to kind of ease him back into things before he would be playing in the Crosstown shootout on Saturday the 7th. Yeah, and even then, you know, even when fully healthy and back in the mix, what do you say, Rick? 15, 18 minutes probably a game? Uh, oh, yeah, I think that's on the high side, at least for right now. I mean, I think, you know, Saturday. I'm, I mean, not I'm, sat- I mean, Saturday you're looking at one four-minute war each half. Yeah, ten, yeah, ten minutes at the most probably. Um, and then when he's back, you know, maybe if we're talking Wake Forest, Western Carolina, TCU-ish, right before the start of conference play, you figure he's he's been back for three weeks at that point. I could see him, yeah, I mean, maybe playing 10 to 14 minutes. Because yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, Bryce Moore certainly isn't going to be eliminated in terms of his minutes. And then Damir Bishop may lose some minutes if Kiki outplays him. Damir hasn't, hasn't really been able to provide a lot offensively for this team at this point. Um, I think he's competed fairly well, but he has, he has had some freshman struggles for certain. Maybe Kiki takes some of his minutes away, but I don't think he'll lose all of his minutes. So if you're still trying to play those other two guys at all, it, it, there's not a ton of minutes available because it's not like Paul Scruggs and Quentin Good and Najee Marshall are losing minutes. Yeah, actually, one thing I do want to touch on is this this Quentin Gooden phenomenon that we're seeing right now. Um, I I just I'm having a hard time with it because I feel like I fought it with D Davis too where for a long time, D. Davis was the worst player ever to play Xavier basketball until, what, the NCAA tournament his senior year? Yeah, well, the Crosstown shootout his senior year as well. People yeah. appreciated that performance. Um, like, let's really think about, you know, I don't remember what Quentin did. Quentin was terrible against Towson. They were better with him off the court. I'm sorry if his family's listening. It's just reality. That doesn't mean he's a terrible player. He just had a terrible game. But against UConn, People are like, well, he didn't score. Well, yeah, he took one shot, which which was significant growth. And he didn't try to force anything. He didn't he didn't do anything that wasn't there. He I don't remember, but I think he had like five assists, no turnovers. He played good defense. He did what you want him to do. And then against Florida, he hit big shots. He had a couple turnovers. One of them was really bad at the beginning of the game when he tried to throw a one in a million pass to Najee on the break. But, you know, he had uh, only a couple turnovers. He really ran the team, got in the right spots. I thought he did some good things defensively. Now, he, he screwed up a switch or two by his own admission. But, you know, he, he played fine. He, he played his role. He's not going to be an 18-point-a-game scorer. And if he's shooting the ball 15 times, that's a problem as well. That's not what he's trying to do. So I, I think people have this notion of what they want out of him that isn't reality. Well, and it's also, you know, they're always moving the goalposts on him. It's, you know, one yeah. game they don't want him to shoot at all, and then the next game when he doesn't score, he's not providing enough. And it's always something else. Uh, for whatever reason, he's drawn a, an absurd amount of criticism over the last two years. And I understand last year he certainly had a disappointing season. Um, this year, I think he's been – we talked about guys accepting their roles and, and everyone kind of being cohesive and buying in. I think he's been a big part of that because he's been willing to make it work with the other two and kind of – 
realize that we need to feed Paul and Najee and let them be the go-to guys offensively, and he's still willing to look for his moments, but for the most part, he's accepted and taken a back seat in terms of scoring and, and conceded a little bit to those other two guys. Yeah, and you know what? You know what we call that? Being a point guard. Yeah, exactly and right. I, I mean, that's that's what and, that's what you're asking out of them. Yeah, and that's what I thought people wanted, but now I found out that's not. So that's very intriguing to me. Um, but yeah, I just felt we needed to address that situation, Rick, because it, it just it's gotten not that we're going to quiet it. We don't have that much power, but I, I just think it needs to be known that it's gotten absurd. Yeah, and that's not to say that Quentin can't play better. I mean, there's certainly some yeah. things he can do better. He's had a bad game or two, and he'd be the first one to admit that. And I think he will play better. But yeah, I mean, just every game, it seems like we're hearing what Quentin did wrong. And it's like, well, he is far from the problem in most of these games. And a lot of games, he's he's really helped this team, I think. And and his defense, for the most part, has been great this year with you know the Florida game maybe notwithstanding. Yeah, and again, it's just like you – he took one shot against UConn because that's what the game dictated for him to do. Get the ball. They got the ball to Tyreek a million times. They got Najee went nuts. And you know what Q did? He gave Najee the ball to be in position to go nuts when he was hot. You know, then he, he battled some foul trouble. The team wasn't discernibly better with him off the court, like quite honestly happened against Towson. So he, he was fine against against UConn and then he was pretty good against Florida making clutch threes taking good threes not forcing one shot not sure what people want yeah if, if you would tell me a team in 2019 and division one basketball is shooting 27.7 percent from three which ranks you know 302nd in the entire nation and they have a top 55 offense in the country I would say two things one they probably have a point guard that's doing a pretty good job of running the show. And two, they probably have a staff that's doing a decent job of scheming some things and, and finding a way to, to manufacture points on a team that doesn't have a lot of skill. And yet constantly the things I hear criticized the most <laughs> about this team are the point guard play and the lack, the lack of uh, scheme on offense. So, uh, you know, sometimes you just shake your head. Wide open shots aren't good enough, Rick. <laughs> All right. They have to be wide open layups. Uh, Brian, the Musketeers, as we mentioned, Lipscomb coming up on Saturday and then Green Bay ahead of the Crosstown shootout. Obviously, we will record before the Crosstown shootout. Um, any thoughts, though? I mean, obviously, two two wins expected over the next two games, but is there anything you're looking for aside from the return of Kiki Tandy over these games? Um, I'm looking for Xavier to continue to grow in terms of their ability just to eliminate some of the really dumb things. There's always going to be turnovers, which is fine. There's always going to be screw-ups defensively, which is fine. But, you know, coming out of a timeout when you when the coach says we're not switching, he asks everyone, do you know we're not switching? They say yes, and then they switch the first timeout. That's a problem. Right. Um, Shooting the 40-footer with three and a half seconds left, you know, yeah. having back-to-back -back turnovers where you just lose your mind and throw the ball directly to a defender in front of you. That's the one thing I did come away from this this Charleston Classic wondering because we did see that in all three games, you know, and, and they played yeah. pretty darn well against Towson. I thought they played pretty well against UConn, but made too many mistakes. And against Florida, they played all right, but obviously made too many mistakes. And every game I just came away asking, at what point do we just wonder 
dude, these got, will these guys never grow, grow out of that? Will they just never get it that they've got to eliminate those careless mistakes? And, and I don't think they ever will grow out of it, but I think it's instead of five or six of them a game, it has to be two or three of them a game. Right. Um, that, to me, that's where the growth area – it's, it's not going to go away with this group, which is okay. Like teams have strengths and weaknesses, and in, in this, that's not always going to be this team's strength. But it's got to be mitigated. Like you just can't – you know, I don't want to pick on. I know Travis at least during the game thought thought the ball off that turnover where Q made a fantastic defensive play, went to Carter, and he's driving. And he, I think they were down five, down three. I can't remember with about a minute and a half to go, and he just throws it off a dude's thigh. Right, right. I I watched it on replay. I didn't think it was a kick. I don't know how you feel, Rick. Um, like you, you can't have that one. You can't have. I think it was Paul just kind of threw the ball to a defender at the top of the key with no real regard for human life. You can't have that one. Or maybe you can have one of the two. You can't have both. So it's just eliminating one out of two of those just asinine mistakes where I think the big a big growth area can come. Because I think you're starting to see this team, they're shooting it better. Not to say they're shooting it great, but they're shooting it better. Um, and Paul hasn't even really, really started making threes yet. So I think that'll help. Kiki will help in that regard. Again, I think they can get up to the 33, 34% range, not the 15% range, which is what it was the first four games. Yep. Yep. No, I agree with all that. And I think shooting is one of those things that is contagious, you know, a little bit. So you start seeing a few of them go down. Quentin finally got a couple to go down. If Paul gets it going a little bit, all of a sudden Kiki gets put in, inserted in the lineup. He makes another one or two and Bryce keeps making a couple occasionally. I think at that point, you know, you you get a little confidence going. And like you said, all of a sudden you're up to 32, 33% at least, and you're not one of the worst shooting teams in the entire nation. It gives you a chance to, to creep up into maybe the thirties, on the offensive end instead of you know mid 50s yeah they can be a bad shooting team and and be very successful it's just really hard to be a horrendous shooting team and be very successful i think we can all agree on that snow anything else before we wrap this podcast up um i i think perspective is key rick i think we both had him what six and one at this point in time in our preseason projections we did they are six and one. Been a little bit different than maybe we anticipated, but it six and one is six and one, and it's a team where you can still see a lot of growth. It's a team that's going to be able to fight, and it is the hardest playing team I think I've ever seen up close in terms of a Xavier team. That's the one thing that really stuck out to me sitting courtside was, wow, these dudes freaking compete. I was sitting next to an NBA scout, Reggie Rankin. He works for the uh, Golden State Warriors, former Dayton assistant. And he was sitting next to me during the Florida game. And he said something to me like, you really have to bury Xavier to beat them. And they just started making a comeback and started making a comeback. Like, those are tough dudes. And I know Travis came out and said that's a baseline expectation. To some extent, yes, it is a baseline expectation. But – the way they compete, as tough as they are, as hard as they play, you can count a handful of teams in the country who are capable of doing that every night, and Xavier has done it every single night. Oh, and, and we've talked about this before when talking about recruiting, but playing hard is a skill. So Absolutely. you can have you know, two teams playing at their hardest, 
and one team understands how to take it to a level the other team doesn't understand. And I think Xavier is on the right side of that balance right now. Now, you, you made an interesting statement. You said this team plays as hard as or harder than any Xavier team or tougher than any Xavier team you've seen um, up close in person. You covered the Sean Miller teams. I think people are immediately going to reference that 2007-2008 team, which which played in the Sweet 16 against UCLA, beat Georgia, Purdue, and West Virginia. What I mean, can you compare the two at all? Do they do they seem oh, similar? I, I would compa- I would compare it to the team the next year, the one that lost to Pitt in the Sweet 16. That that team, the the Elite Eight team, was, was kind of pretty. Yeah, yeah. Josh Duncan. I don't think anyone's ever accused Josh Duncan of being the hardest player in the world. Fair, fair. Um, you know, yeah, more the hear. BJ Re- more the BJ Raymond team, I guess. Yeah, the next year. Yeah, the next year that that team would be very comparable. I think this one's a little bit more athletic in the process. Um, so and the bigger, so that that's what I would say. But that would be the comparable team, not, not so much the Elite Eight team. Gotcha. And, you know, obviously that, you know, those Xavier teams shot the ball a whole heck of a lot better than this one um, did. So to be doing what this team is doing defensively is obviously a little bit more important for for this year's group as well. So um, interesting to see, I think, you know, from my perspective, from what I've seen since I've been covering the team, it's definitely the best defensive team. I don't think that's in in question. Um, And that's a lot to do with the personnel that was in place for many of the good years that I've been covering the team. You know, there's just more offensive minded teams for the most part, but um, it definitely has been an interesting transition for, for me to watch and, and cover. Um, I think that does it for this edition of the Dana victory podcast for the legend, Brian snow. I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.